The following podcast is a Dear Media production. You know those things you are too embarrassed to talk about when it comes to dating? Like when to say I love you, how to define the relationship. Well, We Met at Acme touches upon all of those subjects and more, and we get right into it with our guests and talk about their dating lives and also what not to do when it comes to dating because we're all kind of confused together. So you can tune in every Sunday to We Met at Acme, and maybe you can learn a thing or two while I learn a thing or two. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. We all experience different types of rock bottoms. We often are met with signs or red flags along the way, signaling us that something is not working. Red flags that we have been overlooking or avoiding, pushing through and denying, either due to duty, pride, addiction, habit, fear, curiosity, or even compulsion, until we can no longer tolerate it, not for one moment more. Rock bottoms tend not to feel good, it's true. And most of the time they can be downright painful. But as my guest on today's episode shares, being at rock bottom can actually be a baseline for reinvention, a place from which you can rebuild a new reality and make space for something much better to come. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is certified life coach, hypnotherapist, spiritual mentor, meditation teacher, and recovering alcoholic, Ryan Haddon. Ryan shares all about her quest for finding happiness in all the wrong places, living a very high-flying, fast-paced, and privileged Hollywood life while being married to a celebrity actor in her 20s, addiction, multiple starts to the program, not knowing how to live life on life's terms, destruction, the low, low points, and the very rock bottom, being completely out of body and mind, winding up in jail after being out of control and walking back into her home, sniffing the scent of baby talcum powder, coming to terms with the shame of being a mother who could not show up for her own children and what it truly means to get sober and the healing and intentional work on the daily to stay sober. This is a story about a very hard rock bottom, but it's also a story of the beauty of human resilience and humility, the courage to change, and the opportunity of a rebirth. So before we kind of start with the episode, I like to ask my guests some rapid-fire style questions that just serve as a way to get to know you a little more intimately. And it's just a little section on the Looking Up podcast that I like to call Looking In. So without further ado, don't think about it too much, just whatever comes to your mind. Is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share. Oh, there's so many. I mean, I feel like some of the books I've read have been like transmissions of information. So I'll put in that category, Journey of Souls, The Power of the Subconscious Mind, and recently The Raw Contact. The second question I have for you is people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I guess people probably would think I'm more serious than I am because I'm so earnest all the time about what I talk about. And you're 
the doctor of joy and happiness, but probably that I'm silly. I like to dance and I break into song all the time and probably sillier than people know. I love that. Describe yourself as a teenager during the high Mm. school years. Spiritually seeking, interbulated, maybe a little bit of reckless. Mm, Okay. When is the last time that you cried? Yesterday. Do you count teary? Like yes. move, emotional, yeah. Yes, yes. Not the big boohoo, but definitely teary and emotional. I was watching my daughter, who's six, go to my mom for comfort. And my mom's just the container of compassion that she brought to that moment really stopped me in my tracks. Mm. And how she mirrored back to her, just her empathy and what her crying and what she was going through. It was just a beautiful sight. And we were in nature. And it was just, it was one of those moments where you say, stop, freeze, remember yes. this. Yes, absolutely. Three things that have brought you joy today without too much thought or judgment. Um, my daughter is recovering. She broke her arm. So we sat and read Harry Potter and we're in the final seventh book, last hundred pages. So that was super joyful for both of us. How uh, cozy. To, it was so that. cozy. Yeah. It was a perfect thing to be doing with her. And then I just did a TV segment, a live TV segment about how to end your day. And I love teaching people how to bookend their day and really bring intentionality to it. So that brought me joy. And then I had my women's group today. I have a women's group that I teach group coaching and it's a really intimate, safe, beautiful group. We've been together for three months. And we just reconvened today after a little bit of a break. So that was super joyful to see them all again be together. Oh, those are three great things. They brought me joy listening to them, actually. I have so many questions for you. And I know that you do a lot of coaching. And I actually, that's so interesting that you just said that you were doing a segment on how to help people book and their day. It's, it's interesting. I feel like I do that as well, but I more so focus on the beginning of the day. And so I think that's so interesting. And I'd love to actually just mm-hmm. ask you what some of those tips are like randomly right now, because it's the, the right time. What are some ways that people can <laughs> intentionally book and their day? I think the first thing is pulling out a journal or a piece of paper and maybe writing down three things that went really well and three things that could go better, that could have gone better. And I think just that intentionality and review, it's a way to keep our side of the street clean. And then if there's anything that carries over to the next day, is there an amends? Is there a call that needs to be made? Did you miss a moment in a conversation with someone? Yes. Then it's a way to just also empty the mind, put it on paper, get it out of here, do a dump, and really just take a look at it. And it's like really being present with, you know, everything is such a blur most days, especially with little kids and busy lives. And, and it's just a really nice way to do that. And then I love, you know, the, the gratitude list. And what I love about that also in the writing, when you, after you've done your three things, put 10 things you're grateful for. I did that for a year. I committed to doing it. And why I love it so much is that you can't repeat the same thing. So it becomes subtler and subtler in your day. And you start to notice the good as it's happening in real time, boots on the ground. And it really grows out that gratitude. And we both know, right? Like gratitude, not a lot of like angst and anxiety and stress. Like when you're in gratitude, you can't really cohabit so well together. So yeah, it's a nice way to, to notice that at night, taking that inventory. So that would be that. And then I love doing breath work at night. You know, everyone's, we talk about meditation in the day and nighttime's right. a great time to do meditation, but not everyone wants to do that. So really cleaning and clearing and doing like a simple, you know, count of 10 on the in-breath one, count on the out-breath two, on the in-breath three, on the out-breath four, and just moving up to 10 
And doing that for five to 10 minutes really drops you into presence, calibrates left and right hemispheres of the brain, kind of like even if you did, you know, Nadi Shodana, alternate nostril breathing, you could do that too. I think breath work really just drops us down past all the chitter chatter of the mind and you're going to sleep better. Exactly. (laughs) And you're going to wake up refreshed. And I'm also a hypnotherapist, so I'm big on the subconscious mind. And when you go to sleep at night, if you have any affirmations, that's the most impressionable time to do them, that the subconscious is most receptive to it. So as you're drifting off to sleep and your brainwave activity drops into that theta delta state, which is when it's slower, that would be the time to say things like, I am calm, I am loved, I am safe. And they'll really take root and you'll have you'll sleep well and you'll be less, you know, um, chattering about other things and worries and anxiety because you've already written everything down. <laughs> yeah. And you're in, you're dropping into that sweet spot. Absolutely. I talk a lot about healthy sleep and good quality sleep and how basically underrated it is and how powerful it actually is and potent as a source mm-hmm. scientifically speaking for increasing joy and resiliency and happiness. And so it's so true. Mm. Like what we do right before we go to bed and actually for a period of time before we do go to bed and unwind is so important. And I think like so much of that is about almost like getting things out of the cloud of your mind, not to be like computery, but yeah, like downloading it onto a hard drive, which is the paper and getting it out of your mind. Because also then Mm -hmm. I like the idea of, I talk a lot about mindfully worrying. And one of my tips in the optimism card deck, the things we're Mm -hmm. looking at card deck is actually like setting a time intentionally every single day to worry. And it's really important to do that because you're obviously... Mm -hmm not disregarding the fact that you are going to worry. It's part of our existence. Stress happens. Worry happens. Emotions that are less than ideal happen. And it's part of our human existence. And it's actually that those emotions are important ways just as much as positive emotions to you know, develop happiness. But right before bed, being able to get those out and saying like, I know these are there and these worries are there and I'm not throwing them out. I'm not disregarding them. I'm literally just, I'm actually writing them down and putting them aside so I can get back to them later. And I don't necessarily have to work them out in my subconscious while I sleep. I know you do a lot of work with clients, but I'm actually like, I would love to dive in and I'm so interested to hear about your own personal story. And I know that that's also something that is really helpful Mm -hmm. when you're helping heal other people and help other people heal themselves. And so I have read a little bit about you. I know we're both contributors to Push, to Kourtney Kardashian's site, and I've seen that you write quite a bit for that blog. And I have read a little bit about your recovery story and your sort of struggle with addiction. And I found it so powerful and would love love for you to share um, your journey if you're open to it and the things that completely didn't work and what actually did work and what stuck and and what you're working on even now? Because I know it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, until you know that you're your own solution, you're going to look for solutions everywhere else. And I think that's what led me into addiction is trying everything to try to mitigate and manage my big, big feelings and some past, you know, childhood things and just my value in the world that I lived in. And I couldn't quite get a handle on that. And so those are really difficult things to travel through life with, if you will. You know, it's very uncomfortable. And so some of us might be predisposed to addiction. Some of us might have that gene. Some of us might have had it modeled to them. I don't know what everyone's beliefs are. But for me, I believe that I have that 
I'm predisposed to it. And so my brain center lights up differently. My pleasure centers in the brain light up differently when drugs and alcohol gets into my system. And so it sets off a phenomenon of craving. So, you know, I also think there's environmental circumstances and moments in time. So my alcoholism, my, my journey in that world, that darker space didn't happen until later in life. It was a combination of a bad breakup, really losing my footing, all these underlying you know, cesspool of feelings of worth and value and place in the world. And all those things just really came to a head. And that became a solution for managing that, that discomfort. And so I really took off with a bang. And um, I was in a, a Hollywood situation, a Hollywood lifestyle. And so that really can amplify, Mm -hmm. intensify and amplify all of that because you have access to everything. And it's all about people, places, and things and all the smoke and mirrors. And at that time I was really buying into all of it. So I was like in my late twenties, just about when it really kind of mid, mid twenties, late twenties, when it really sort of took off. And you moved, you moved to LA, right? You're not from LA. I had moved to LA. I had sort of grown up all over from Canada and I lived in New York and Paris and had moved there for a little while when I went to high school. My last year of high school was there. And then I went off to India, funny, funny enough. Um, and I lived yeah. there for a while. So wait, was India before or after your rock bottom? It was before that. And what drew you to India? I had met a meditation teacher at 17 and I was drawn to it. It was something I was, like I said, I think you would ask me in the beginning how I qualified myself and I was spiritually seeking. Mm. Um, I had the death of a family member and that sort of in, around 15 and that had sort of opened me up to these, I, this idea that why are we here? What are we doing here? So that was the blessing of that person's passing yes. sort of left me with those existential questions. And it was a little early, but it took me to India. So I went there and studied there and studied great scriptures and really wanted to stay, but I ended up going off to college and it was hard to bring, to reconcile that world there into college atmosphere. Yes. And so I, I managed it for a period of time. And then I'd say, again, trying to find my way with work and all these different parts and pieces. And then it, in my mid-20s, I kept trying to lean into that spirituality, but I really didn't have a practical spirituality. I could sit in meditation in the lotus position. I could to have these great transcendental experiences, but I didn't know how to live life on life's terms. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to bring that spirituality in a day to day. Mm -hmm. You know, I had all these fantasies and all these ideas about life and it it really, they were incongruent with that spirituality. And so, you know, I abandoned it for a while and really embraced this other path. Like I said, tell me about, yes, when you're in in LA, tell me about going in with the bang. What does that mean? Uh, it means just like I had said, then I had married into it and I was in that whole world and it was super fun until it's not mm-hmm. right. And when you start believing it's real and you start thinking, this is what your value and your worth and your thing, and it's not really yours and your, your, your partners and like, it's so confusing. Yeah. And I had a few children somewhere, you know, you're, and then I think I had some postpartum to be honest, mm-hmm. there was a part of that. I had some of that going on and then I had been sober for that time. So I had this kind of descent in my 20s. I know this is kind of confusing because we're all over the timeline. But in my 20s, I got married, sober, had these kids and late 20s. And then after the second kid, I thought, you know what? I can have a glass of wine with dinner. I've gone this period of time. I have this life of, you know, I have this wonderful husband. I have these great kids. You know, it was just a bad moment in time. And, mm-hmm. and then the glass of wine with dinner was a great concept. A lot of people around me, some were worried, some thought, you know what, she's probably, you know, I didn't have this long history of it. 
And um, I had this spirituality. So people were thought she'd probably, you know, we'll lean into that. And, you know, you, you seek out who's going to tell you what you want to hear a little bit. Yeah. And so, absolutely. yeah. And so then there you go. So that, that was that. And it, glass of wine with dinner turned into quickly full-blown alcoholism with small kids. And thankfully mm-hmm. I had help. So they weren't, you know, at the mercy of my insanity for the most part of going out and partying all the things that you read in that article. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really go into detail about that and just the shame just as a person, but also as a mother, as, as a, mother. a new mother, not being able to show up for your kids is a special, there's a special place in hell for that kind mm-hmm. of shame. Do you know? And do you have I'm, like a moment within that time where it felt like it is just like this moment that is very almost tangible? I know that when I work with people that are sort of like they've reached a rock bottom, they can remember that moment and they can like, it's scary to go back, but they can like almost sometimes going back to it is like a motivation. Yeah. There's a visceral moment. I do remember like coming back from a night of partying and clubbing or whatever else and walking through the front door at whatever ungodly hour it was and then smelling talcum powder and feeling that just that crumbling inside, like, how do I get back to my children? Like feeling Mm -hmm. like that. I didn't know what the bridge was to bring me back to them, you know? Um, yeah. And so that those, those visceral moments, there's, there are many of them, but that's one of them that I remember. And you know what the thing is, is that when you're deep into your disease, the alcoholism of it, mm-hmm. the, that addiction, it doesn't matter. Then if that's not your time to, to get sober, right. you'll just keep, you push those down, you push those down, you'll keep doing more, you'll keep, you know, upping the ante because those thoughts, memories, you know, flags on the field, Yes. just becomes so painful. And to just to keep that machine going, you just keep pushing them down and move into, you know, the next, what's next? Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, realization, oh, close it down. Right. Go back to what we're doing. Uh, and the denial sets in. So, you know, I'm very lucky. It was a short period of time, but it was an intense period of time. It was 22 months mm-hmm. from the first drink till when I landed, you know, I had a very dramatic ending. I It's documented. So, it's very salacious, but it's well documented. I threw a glass at my husband and he, you know, had to go to jail. I had to go to jail. And so I spent a night in jail. And Was this in um, Vegas? It was Vegas. Okay. Yeah. So you're in Vegas. You are drunk. All of that. All of All that. Of yes. Everything. Yeah. Everything. You guys get in an argument and you throw Wait. a glass. Yes. And it was like one of those red hot moments yes. where you're not you know, absolutely. You're kind of out of body watching yourself like, Oh my God, how did I get here? And there's so many of those. Every addict has those where you pop out of your body mm-hmm. and you're like, what, how, how did this bottom, how did I drop to this? How did it get here? How am I here? And then there's something that, 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 you know, discrepancy within yourself. You're like, how much more can we go? How further yes. can we go? It's that destructive, you know, how much, where is this going to go? How deep is this going to go? And I knew I was moving away from my kids. I knew my marriage was in jeopardy. And, you know, there was all sorts of drama between the two of us all the time. And um, so that anyway, that was that moment. And I remember sitting in that holding tank and just being like, wow. And I saw like there was a news story that popped on and I was on the thing and I was like, oh my God, the gig's up. And that next day I drove, I got driven. Someone picked me up when I was released. It was a short moment. And I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't sit there thinking, oh my God, it's over. I remember thinking like, what's going to happen? How am I going to continue this? Like that's the mind of the addict. And so anyway, I was brought to the rehab and I feel like this is my moment of grace because you know there were lots of them throughout those 22 months, but this was one of those where I found myself in this place. I didn't want to be there. It was a dumpy rehab. I, the, the one that was really fancy, the Hollywood one wasn't open, didn't have beds for me. So I got driven to this one in my fancy limo and um, 
I was like already making the case to leave. I was like, I'm, I don't need this. You don't, you know who I am, blah, blah, blah. There was a part of me that was observing myself speaking like that and going like, what are you talking about? Mm. And then this beautiful counselor, that's that window of grace came to me. She goes, what do you want to do? And I found myself saying, I'm going to stay. And then there's that other voice where like, you're going to stay. What, what do you mean? What? No, you're not going to stay. And then I just, the next thing I know, I went to sleep. I crashed out that night. I was exhausted. And I woke up the next morning and I was like, it's over. It is over for me. And I don't know, this is done and I'm going to do this. And I had been in the program before, but I kind of did it my way. Yeah. You know, um, I kind of like mitigated it. And I was kind of like, I wasn't hundred percent sure to the core of myself that I was an alcoholic yeah. and that I had a disease that wanted to take me out. Like I didn't really fully get that. And that's what I learned in those 22 months or afterward, looking at all the wreckage of it. Yes. Um, that it didn't matter what fancy life I had. It didn't matter how many beautiful kids I had. It didn't matter who I was married to. It didn't, marry, didn't matter what car I drove, what clothes I had, what jewelry, all the things that you think you need to have to be happy and safe and secure. None of those things mattered. I had a disease that would destroy everything from the inside out. And I got that. Wow. And so it was super potent. And then the next day I did what I was told. It was like that willingness, that little small mustard seed of faith and willingness popped in, you know, and that's that grace that I don't quite know because I know other people, I speak with people all the time. It doesn't always happen that way. So I'm so grateful that that was my particular bottom. And so from there, I just did what I was told. I started going to meetings, even though I was like, I'm not a joiner, you know, I was like not feeling any of that. And I didn't really see myself in the group that I was with or, you know, I just kept saying, for some reason, I knew I had a knowing this is right for me and just stay here because you have to survive this. And almost like it sounds like a relinquishness of control. Like you, you were like, it sounds like before in some of the situations, even though you were in and you were sort of, okay, I'm here, I'll do the program. But you were still like, but I'm going to control this, this and that aspect of it. And sort of this time, it sounds like you were a little bit more like, I recognize that like, I have this disease and there's something right. really wrong here and I'm going to do what I say and just let go and That's like right. see if see if they can help me. Let's just see and like let go and maybe there was a bit of curiosity too of openness. I think so and also, you know, what you're describing right there, that's step 1. I'm powerless and it, and it's and my alcoholism is unmanageable. Mm. And so I really got that I was powerless and it was unmanageable. And like, when you get step one, you get it. Like you're in, like, then you're in, you're, you're going on the way. Like I cannot manage this with my own tools, my volition, that spirituality that I had. It's not, it's not enough. And I remember I sat down with my mentor who became my sponsor and I was like regaling her with my fabulous stories in India and stuff. And she's (laughs) like, Hey, guess what? That God didn't keep you sober. So let's build Mm -hmm. you one that can. And I was like, what? You know, and it was like that had been like something I had hidden behind. Yes. And I, and I had done that the first time in the, in the program. And so she and I really sorted through that through the following, you know, step two is coming to building a God and step three is turning your will and life over to it. So those first three steps we stayed on and that was kind of the blueprint. And that's, you know, you asked me how I did it and, you know, I'm safe to say it's through, for me, it was through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I did. That's so powerful. And I think that so many people like don't get how hard and difficult and how much time actually that first step can take. I think it sounds really simple like, oh, you know, I don't have control over this. That sounds simple, but that takes like years sometimes and lots of wreckage to, and like you said before, I think it's so powerful. And you said, if it's not your time 
to sort of be like, I'm at the end of my rope. It's not your time, no matter how much damage has been done or how low you feel that you've gone. If it's not your time, it's your time, not your time. And I think that's so powerful. And there's so much about it that is this like control and lack of control struggle that really all of us feel um, on, oh my God, yeah. you know, in, in different ways as humans. It's part of the human existence. But I think that is so powerful. And it is. what's interesting to me also about your story is how much spirituality is involved in it. And almost like, you know, you were throwing back to your your mentor, like, but I am really spiritual and I have this and I have that. And mm-hmm. I love how she said to you, but that God didn't, didn't keep you sober. So we have to build a new one. I love that. And so it's like, oh, okay. But it was still a spiritual, still oh something God. spiritual for yeah, you. Absolutely. I mean, that program is spiritual. Make no mistake about it. It's a blueprint for living, but it's also how to like clear up the past, how to make amends, how to you know, be of service to other people. Like there's so many parts and pieces to it. It's Mm -hmm. so divine and so such a powerful, beautiful program. I mean, there's many, many ways to get sober. And I will say this, I want to say this in the same breath. I am not a spokesperson for that program. Mm -hmm. You know, God forbid I ever went out and that happened to me again. It's not because it didn't work. It's Mm -hmm. because I stopped working the tools. I mean, this November will be 17 years by the grace of God. So it's a long, long running thing. But I just want to say that just because I have time doesn't mean I've cracked the code. Like I have absolute humility and around how this disease works. And the beautiful thing, you talked about that control and that first step is about that. Well, I had to relinquish it to save my life. Like I really understood that. Like sometimes we can, it could be eating or it could be all these different ways we try to manage our kids or try to control this outcome. But to have to really unlearn all of that to fight for my life so that I could stay in reality and not have to mitigate all the time and not to take the edges off Mm -hmm. and really just move into presence. I mean, that is deeply, deeply spiritual. And I don't know how else to do that without just white knuckling it and not drinking at all. And I, I wasn't interested in that. I knew I had to undergo, I had to be turned inside out for me, not for everybody, but for me, that's how it had to be. I had to take and sift through and I had a beautiful mentor, but I had to sift through all my beliefs, all my, my, what brought me there? You know, why did this become the last stop on the train? And so it was, so it was a, it was a really magical time. It was hard. It was really hard. And, you know, the person I was married to wasn't quite ready to get off that train themselves. So I was living in that environment. And then I had these small kids. And when I look back, I have so much affection for that girl that worked so hard because I was a girl, you know, literally, mm-hmm. I think I was 30, 32 years old and, you know, turning 50 this year. So I was just a, a girl who had like really had to sift through her past and make peace with a lot of skeletons in the closet. And there was so much fearlessness in doing it. Yes. And I had beautiful women leading the way for me. So that was really important to um, start to learn to trust myself as a mother, as a woman, as a wife, as a daughter. Like it was all this renegotiation. And um, wow, I'm just so glad it was a part of my journey, truly. How long were you in the pro- Well, I guess you're still in, are you still in the program? Is that I'm still, still considered? Okay, yes. so you're still in the program. But there you still were, go to meetings. Oh my gosh, yes. I started meetings here because um, I moved here from Los Angeles about 10 years ago. And I started looking at Wait, where are you right now? I'm in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. My, my husband and I left LA and moved to Pennsylvania. He wanted to restore an old farmhouse. And wow. I was, yeah. So we live in a, this old 17th century farmhouse that he's lovingly restored. 
That's so cool. And uh, yeah, I was just sort of done with the LA paradigm for a minute. I love LA. I had like a really long, sober run there and spiritual. I have such sisters, sisterhood there. And I was single there for a long time. That was a whole other bag of tricks. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a really fertile, wonderful time. But I was ready for something else. I was ready to be in nature. I was ready to like stop the outer noise and get into kind of nature reflecting peace and tranquility. And what ended up happening when I moved here was like, I started realizing the deafening inner noise, you know, yes. I had to quiet. So yes, um, less distractions yeah. and Up. more listening to, Definitely. to the noise that's within. Yep. How long have you been there? When did you move? 10 years. It's oh, been a little wow. over 10 years. Yeah. It's been a long time. So came here, I was like six months pregnant and had that, my daughter, and then I had another, another child. So I have four Four kids now. It's kind of amazing straddling both worlds. How old were your, you had two kids when yeah. you were sort of in that time, those 22 months that you were, yeah. how old were they? They were two and four when I got okay. sober and they're 21 and 19 now. Wow. I know. And then they these other two so are eight. proud of you as well. And six. They are. You were going to say, and I think I cut you off a little bit ago, you were, you were going to say like you went in and you knew sort of like, this was it, this was over, but you're like, I'm not doing this for my kids. Yeah. I, I really felt that it was that piece of the puzzle that I was missing. I had that knowing that I was doing this for me and everyone would benefit. And I didn't know what was going to happen with my marriage because that was t- in that tumultuous moment. And I didn't know what was going to happen if my kids would want me back. I didn't know my mom had, you know, that's what this, what this disease does. It like really destroys family. It's a family disease, right? Mm-hmm. All relationships suffer. And I didn't know, and I had this public investment in my public persona that I was trying to curate and like, oh my God. Um, And so So I just kept saying, let all of that go and just be here and do, take direction. Take direction, allow these other people who have been able to do this and do it well and not just, you know, survive, but thrive. And I could see that they were lit up from within and I wanted that. Do you think in the program or with the tools that having that, inner motivation for yourself and not necessarily, you know, about kids or about a partner and really like wanting to change and to recover for you is a, is a really important piece in recovery. Yeah. I think what I've learned in the subsequent years is that for me, it's about um, just continuing to expand and grow, you know, and be willing to try new things and pick up new practices and, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but in, you know, it's up to me to make that program exciting for myself. It's on me. You know, if I don't like the meetings then I've got to start my own meetings, you know, so it's this, this idea of proactive, there's nothing passive about it. It's the same with my meditations. If I'm bored of this, get a a new one. So that's really, I mean, that's my 12th step. So that's, you know, I mean, that's my 11th step, sorry, 12 step is service, but these are all the ways that, you know, you, I keep all those that step work alive. Again, it's this blueprint. So I'm constantly seeking and wanting to become the best version of myself so that I'm in integrity with the women that I'm taking through the steps in the, in the program and also in my practice, making sure that I'm lit up by what I'm talking about. I'm so interested as someone that studies sort of the holistic and science side of change. And mm-hmm. I find that so interesting too, that that was like, I, I would argue that one of the reasons that it really stuck for you and I wanted to highlight that is that like you were like, I want to change for me. 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about like children who we obviously do so many things for. I mean, there's things that I have done and changed about myself for my child that I'm like, why didn't I do this for myself? Like how, you know, but it came so easily for me to do for my child. But I think that the way that the human brain works is change is hard for all of us. Like mm-hmm. it's the it's one of the hardest parts of human existence for everybody is change. And you have to want something and know why your life would be so much better if this change happened in order mm-hmm. for you to change. And I think like what I admire your courage for is A, that you are so aware of that. And I love how you're, you have so much empathy for that girl. How you said that mm-hmm. girl, I have so much empathy for her, but I love how you are not, you know, you're not shy about saying this is an everyday hard work type of thing. It is. It, is. it definitely is. And I think, you know what, to be honest, if anyone's listening and someone decides to, that they want to get better for someone else, it can start out that way. And then you quickly realize that's not going to be enough. You know, it can be the thing that opens the door. Like I want to get sober for my kids and that can open the door. And then it's that, that's that day in and that that day out kind of hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. It can be done, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and I really had to change my self-talk. That was such a big, big thing. How I, that was a big part of my recovery. You know, I was so punishing and so angry and full, so full of self-loathing and perfectionism and all those, just that, just that bag of horrendous tricks that, you know, leads you nowhere. So I had to curate and cultivate that kind and loving voice to myself. It's such a big part of how I managed the quality. I, I truly believe how you speak to yourself dictates the quality of your life, of what you pull in, your experiences, who you surround yourself with, because it's intolerable to have someone speak to you unkindly if that's not how you speak to yourself. I mean, it doesn't even, it's not a vibrational match. Right. You know, no, absolutely. And that's such a great point. And I also think that I really love that you brought up emotional sobriety and how much addiction can manifest in so many different ways. And for some people, it can never, it could never manifest in a sort of substance way. And it can mm-hmm. be in different ways for other people. It really can manifest in substances. And then as you sort of work through those, it can start manifesting in other ways. And so yeah. what are the addictions that you have battled in your life thus far? What have I recovered from? So much. I mean, love addiction, relationships, food issues, smoking, uh, shopping, you name it, whatever that is, you know, I will have found a way ahead of time Mm -hmm. to really, anything to take me outside of myself. That's how I define it. Anything to take me out of present time, anything to, when I'm feeling a feeling, find something else that'll, that'll fill that hole. Yes. You know, and I really, for me, believe it's a God-sized hole or it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a hole within myself that only I can fill or I can fill through purpose, service, spirituality, my connection to self and something greater. How do you define recovery? Not using the, the same tools in the toolbox that once worked at another time. It's being recovering from that. So I'm not mm-hmm. a recovered alcoholic. I call myself a recovering alcoholic. I'm very, very proud of where I've come from. And it's been a really great run. You know, turning 50 this year, it feels like, oh my God, what a great span and stretch of time. And I love where I am in my life today. And so that's a tremendous amount of recovery. And everyone around me benefits. It's supremely unselfish. I think it sounds selfish. I'm focusing on me. But it's not like, oh, self-care, me time, facials. All those things are amazing. But it's really on getting my needs met and- Taking responsibility. Yes, that I'm responsible. Yeah, and I'm on duty for myself. That's really, my teacher says that and I love that. You know, I'm on duty for the woman. I'm the woman that that 30-something-year-old needed at that time. I've become that woman. 
you know? And so that's such a tremendous thing to look back on your timeline and notice that and know that and stand in that. And now how beautiful I get to be there for that version of me. And then for all the others that come, you know, into my space, these containers that I create with coaching and, you know, my practice and those other places. So I love how you started this off with sort of until you know that you're your own solution, you're going to be constantly looking for it outside, elsewhere, everywhere. And I think that, again, sort of like you talked about a blessing from the unfortunate, you know, loss of a family Mm -hmm. member. And that was sort of like sort of opening you up to Mm -hmm. more spirituality. But, you know, even in that dark moment of being in that holding cell after throwing a glass at your husband, a blessing from that is like, look at the last 17 years and who you are today. That's, that's pretty incredible. And I love, I love how much self-responsibility there is in that because that's, that's really the work that I think so many of us, even if we're not facing addiction, like have to learn. And sometimes we mm-hmm. learn it in a really hard way. And mm-hmm. other times we can hopefully benefit from listening to other people's stories and, and know that, that we are that solution. Even though it's scary, there's also a lot of comfort in that. Mm-hmm. Like not necessarily needing to depend on anyone else or anything else. Yeah, no, I think it's freeing. I think it really, when you get that to your core, that you're responsible, that you're the person that you're seeking everywhere else for, you know, the women that I work with that are single. When you really get that, it really creates a sense of freedom that you can tether yourself to the winds of life that are going to blow because that's what they do. And um, things are going to come down the pipeline. They just do. That's the nature right. of it. And so when you really get that, it's supremely empowering in the best sense. And it's so freeing to be, to know that right. and to share your life from that place. I always say that I credit so much to my foundation in, in sort of the academic world and getting the master's and the doctorate and all the hours. But there was so much about the, the field that I found to have holes in it and to be somewhat antiquated that I felt like just wasn't, I wasn't able to practice um, in the way that I thought that I could be the most helpful. And one of the, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is giving people self-mastery tools, practical tools that they can sharpen and develop on their own and use on their own. And, and so from a coaching perspective, and especially with everything that you're saying about, you know, taking responsibility and you being your own solution. How do you help teach that to people and still remain as a coach, but, but you're sort of empowering other people to help themselves and not necessarily depend on you? Mm, oh my God, absolutely. Because I, I think it's how you approach it too. I don't think I have their answers. As the coach, I'm really helping them unlock that wisdom. And maybe there's some signposts, just like I've had mentors that have showed up and say, how about see it this way? How about this way? Or I'm hearing this block and I'm hearing, so it's really holding up the mirror. Anyone who comes through my space, I know that they have this wise woman within them. And it's just about them dropping into that. And let's peel away everything else. Let's get rid of all the negative voices. Let's, you know, move things out. Let's get things out of the subconscious. What are these negative habitual beliefs that are, that you're perpetuating these patterns? Let's drop into that space, clear that out. And then where are you standing? So I'll have someone come in and say, I really want to divorce my husband. Can you help me do that? And I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's check in your relationship with you. What does that look and feel like? And then, I'll, then they'll actually stay in the relationship Absolutely. and it moves and it becomes much better. Everything, you change one little element Absolutely. within yourself and it can change everything else. So I just think it's, it's empowering others to find that wisdom and say, you know, how about see it this way? What about this? How does this sit? I'm hearing this. Are you feeling that? 
you know, and so it's, um, it really is such a co-creative process, you know, that's a little bit different than in the program, which is here's a blueprint, you know, here's a blueprint for doing that. It's a little bit more intuitive and organic and there's a process with coaching. What are some of the things that you do on an everyday basis to keep yourself working through the program? Well, I go to meetings. I work with my sponsees as part of it. And then every day I meditate, even if it's late and I only have, I'm like the whole day got really busy and I missed my morning time. I'm, I, I've gotten really flexible with that because I realize it's like a way that the ego can be like, yeah, well, you didn't get your morning in. We'll do it tomorrow. Yes. You know, so I do it whenever it's like down boy, sit, we're meditating, you know, so my higher self has a chance to really, you know, come through. And then that routine is like I said, it's on me to make it exciting. So there's breath work. I might do bowls. I have tuning forks. I'll do chanting. I'll do meditations. I do visualizations. I do hypnosis. I'm constantly taking courses. And so I'm learning and I'm integrating things all the time, but I do something every day in that regard. And I definitely, I write inventory. So I'll write when I'm upset, I have trained myself to like, if I'm in a situation with someone or something happens and I'm feeling that discomfort, right? Cause I'm checking in with myself. That's part of my self-talk. How you doing? What's going on? Oh, not good. All right, let's sit down. What? And I'll start writing. This is what it's about. And I'll just, I'll get it all out on paper and things come when you write, you know, it's like yes. the magic of pen to paper. Like, oh my God, you know, it's this, oh my God, this is reminding me of that. You know, it's about trusting yourself, but it's also knowing that I want people to, just like I hold the mirror up for others. I want that done for me. Yes. And so it's so helpful to feel seen and heard. And it doesn't have to happen within your relationship. As women, we put so much pressure on our partners to do that. And it, it's like creating all these places, this big, wide, you know, river of places where we can have a destination and someone can hold space. There's so much power in the self-check-in. And it sounds, again, it's another thing like sleep where I think is so underrated. And it's so necessary on multiple times in the day to just check in and have a quiet moment. And in this day and age, there's just so much going on all the time that I think we've really lost our natural kind of ability and time and space to to sort of be in touch with our intuition. Yeah, for sure. And it's even like folding the laundry. Yes. You know, you can sit there and start like, for me, as I'll repeat a mantra, just to get the mind immersed in something bigger than my ego, do you know, or I'll just do my breath work. I'll, so whatever, whatever it is, we can get creative and we can yeah. do that. The point is, is that I'm unwilling to be run ragged by the dramas of the world. I mean, my teacher said, you know, don't confuse drama with significance. And mm. I think sometimes, you know, we think that if it's, if it's happening and it's big yes. and it's got my attention, then it's worthy of my yes. effort and time. And this notion of just pulling it, removing yourself from it and just really saying, nope, I'm not, I'm not getting into that. That's not my monkeys, not my circus. And I'm going to do this instead. Right. And I'm going to do breath work. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to call someone. I'm going to write about it. There's so many ways to really move into presence and move away from that frequency because that's addictive also. Talk about that's another addiction. Absolutely. The last thing I want to ask you is what's looking up? for you? Something that you're working on that we can we can read about? Any new articles? Um, and also just generally, what are you excited and optimistic about? Oh my God, everything. I'm excited about the state of the planet. I feel like, you know, there's uh, a lot of things talking about drama. There's just a lot of noise going on. So I'm excited about our evolution. That's what it feels like to me. And I know, you know, there's all these other things going on socially and politically and Really, if just know that that's happening and it's things are recalibrating and just focus on your stillness, focus on your presence, focus on what's in front of you, focus on the contentment and joy in your life. 
and your kids and your, your, your spiritual growth and your self-development. So I'm excited about that. And then personally, you know, I'm excited. I'm, I have a book that I'm putting together. Everyone says that. And I've been writing for three years because I feel like I'm writing posts and I'm writing articles and I'm sort of culling all of that together. And it feels really nice to have it in one place. The last thing that we do on the podcast is I have each of my guests. Well, I don't have you guys pick a card because we're not here together. We're doing this virtually. But um, I pick a card for you from my Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. And you take the prompt with you on your day. And I'll pick it at random. Okay. Oh, here's your card. So these are prompts or suggestions and they're not affirmations. So they're actionable prompts that sort of tell you what to do. And each one has a science-based or holistic suggestion that actually increases resiliency and optimism. So here's yours. It's much easier for us to point out the areas in which people around us need to improve on. Take a moment right now to tell someone what they're really good at. Let someone know that they're doing a great job and mean it. And I love this card. And I actually think it's that someone can be you, which is really cool and related to everything we've talked about. (laughs) It is. We talked about being kind and saying kind words and being encouraging and highlighting the good. And so, yeah, that definitely is a good card for our conversation. Well, it's funny. Every time I pick a card, it just seems to sort of be a nice bookend to the conversation. It really makes sense. Um, Thank you so much for being on Looking Up. I really enjoyed our conversation and I am just in awe of your courage and your commitment to self-growth and all the things that you have worked through and are continuing to work through. And, And a real hallmark of optimism is building resiliency. And so mm. I think it's it's um, so inspirational for all of Thanks, us to come. hear your story. Thanks for having me. What a fun time we spent together. Thanks yes. again. And thanks Thank for doing so what much. you do. Yeah. Oh, you too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.